Welcome to Bread. Advent is a time of preparation and expectancy. In these final weeks of 2023, our services are dedicated to giving us the time and space to consider again the extraordinary story of God becoming human, of the infinite becoming intimate, and of Jesus coming near. It's a time of hope and peace and joy and love. Well, guys, it's the first week of Advent. I'm very excited. I love the Christmas season. Um, the term Advent, you'll hear it around church services a lot at this time of year. It just means the beginning of an event or the invention of something or the arrival of someone. It's the rhythm of anticipating, like Raul said a few minutes ago. It's preparing yourself for what's to come. And I think that's built into us, that wanting to get ready for something before it happens, right? It's why you walk into Target after Halloween and all of a sudden there's ornaments the size of beach balls everywhere and there's fake frost on fake plants and all kinds of nice things. It takes a while for us to settle in, so that's why we start this process a few weeks before Christmas. Um, some of you guys are going to lose all respect for me after I say this. But I personally am a fan of letting Christmas music play before Thanksgiving for this reason. Because it takes me a long time to get into it. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like Christmas in L.A., you know what I mean? I mean, I need to settle in. So celebrating Advent is like the spiritual version of decorating a tree, making hot chocolate with marshmallows, going on your neighborhood walk and seeing all the Christmas lights and Judging that one neighbor that does the blow-up Santa every year, man. Why do those things exist? I honestly don't understand. I'm sorry if any of you guys are the ones. Um, but it's whatever your holiday traditions are. It's that process, that ritual. Preparing the spaces of your mind and soul. Remembering the stories leading up to the birth of Jesus and preparing to celebrate with loved ones. And hopefully, lots of hope, peace, joy, and love. Next week is our big Christmas service. As we've said a million times, please bring your friends. It's going to be a lot of fun. So today we're studying the nativity story in the book of Matthew chapter 1. If you have your Bibles and want to read along in there, you can open those now. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It's about 80-90% of the way through. A couple quick things before we read. You're going to see language like Messiah, son of David, and to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet, things like that. This is because one of Matthew's main goals is to give evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. The Old Testament is full of all kinds of supernatural stuff. The Israelites had depended on promises of God, knowing that he was there with them in some really desperate moments. You know that famous verse, I will never leave you nor forsake you? That was a promise God gave to Israel in the midst of hardship and suffering. It was a promise that through the coming exile, he would be by their side. They held on to the prophecies that had pointed to a coming king who would deliver them from oppression. But up until the angel Gabriel started appearing to people, and announcing the birth of Jesus, there had been about 400 years of silence from God. No prophets, no miracles, just a lot of waiting. 
Messiah is a Hebrew word meaning anointed one. It's the same word that's translated in the Greek, Christ. So no, Christ is not Jesus' last name. And it also doesn't mean deity or God. We use it nowadays to affirm that we believe that Jesus is the one who was promised and that the salvation he offers is even greater and more meaningful than what they expected. Second, Matthew seems to tell the story more or less through the eyes of Joseph. It's something I'd never noticed before, but essentially we get the classic nativity story by combining the accounts in Luke and the accounts in Matthew. In Luke, we follow Mary's side of things, and it goes into much more detail, but Matthew's account, you essentially learn about things as Joseph learns about them. So today, we're going to look at the nativity story through the eyes of Joseph, son of Jacob, born of Nazareth, the quiet, faithful carpenter, and adoptive parent of Jesus Christ. Alex, would you come up and read for us? So I'm reading Matthew 1. Uh, verses 18 through 25. Joseph accepts Jesus as his son. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. All right, so thanks, Alex. If you're reading in your physical Bibles or on an app, you'll notice that we skipped the first half of chapter one, sparing Alex from a very long list of biblical names. I know you all had your hearts set on studying the genealogy of Jesus today, and I'm really sorry to tell you that's not the focus of today's talk, but I do want to make a quick note on it before we jump into the narrative, because it has huge ties into what we're about to see about the types of people that God uses in his story. It has to do with which women he includes and which women he doesn't include. Genealogies didn't usually include women at all. Family lines were traced through the men. So if the purpose of Matthew's genealogy is just to provide evidence that Jesus is the legal heir to the throne of David then there isn't any practical reason to include any mother's names with the fathers. Yet four women other than Mary are there. All four were social outcasts or foreigners. Tamar, a Canaanite and a prostitute. Rahab, a Canaanite and a prostitute. Ruth, a Moabite and a widow. And the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, the woman David committed adultery with. Okay, so maybe 
Matthew is just progressive for his day. He's raging against the patriarchy. He didn't want to get canceled by millennials in Los Angeles 2023. Side note, it is amazing to me that my generation can cancel celebrities, can cancel entire brands, but they can't manage to cancel their Paramount Plus subscription or get off the rugs.com email list. And by my generation, I obviously mean me. So assuming that Matthew is just being inclusive for equality's sake, then why does he leave out so many important women that they would have known in their history? He omits Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, all matriarchs of the faith that have entire stories dedicated to them. Isn't it interesting that all those mothers who fell into these proper, respectable categories and bloodlines and religion are not mentioned, but the women who are considered outsiders and sinners are? These aren't charity cases, either. When you read the stories of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, these are determined forces of nature women that purposefully opt in to this new culture. More importantly to submission to this God. They saw something in Yahweh, the God of Israel, that didn't exist in the multitudes of gods and the surrounding traditions. They saw kindness, grace, compassion, and hope. From the very first sentences of his gospel, Matthew wants to make it very clear that God wholeheartedly welcomes and celebrates anyone who wants to be part of this new kind of kingdom. Maybe you grew up with the idea that before Jesus, God only wanted himself to be known by Jews. It was only through Jesus that all other nations and peoples were invited into relationship with him. But that's just not true. God's plan was that through Israel people of every nation would see his nature. And like Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, they would come to follow him. God's inclusion of all people, regardless of sinlessness or heritage, it didn't start with Jesus. It goes both directions, backward and forward, history and future, calling all of humanity into redemptive relationship with him. Jesus is the fulfillment of what Israel couldn't do, a sinless representation of God to the world. The challenge to us is to be like Ruth and the others, not just believing the right things, but actively submitting ourselves to his plan, trusting in his goodness. Okay, enough about genealogy. Let's talk about Joseph. Who is Joseph? We don't have a ton of information about him other than what's written here in Matthew's gospel, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. Rightly so. Mary gets most of the airtime in the commentary and the songs and the stories when we tell this narrative of Christmas. In a super patriarchal time when virtually every story exclusively glorifies men, the most important origin story in the whole Bible sets the man as the support act and the woman as the hero. It's not difficult to imagine another version of this story, right, with Joseph as the protagonist. 
the turmoil of a righteous man who finds out his wife has been unfaithful. He tries to do the right thing, but it's going to send their worlds crashing to the ground. So as he's about to sign the papers, he's dramatically visited by an angel and then saves the day, protecting Mary from public disgrace and leading them on a difficult journey to Bethlehem, trusting God all the way. The funny part is that all of that is true. And still, even in the version that tells his side, Joseph kind of functions like a minor character. He's low on the call sheet. He sings in the ensemble. He's an extra. He very literally has no lines. The cool part is that Joseph never tries to take the glory. He has all the power in this situation, but he doesn't insert himself into the center. Instead, everything he does shows kindness, humility, and obedience to God. I don't want to brush past this. In the big story of the universe, how do you see yourself? Are you a minor character in someone else's story? Did you grow up in the shadow of a parent or a sibling, feeling like maybe you were just never quite extraordinary enough? Have you spent your life trying to prove that you deserve a seat at the table, wondering if you achieve that next level of wealth or education or fame, then maybe you'll get a speaking part when history's told. Or maybe you've been the one put on a pedestal. Maybe your family, your community, or even strangers on the internet look up to you and depend on you. Maybe sometimes you wish you could fade into the background. This is probably a pretty unsurprising take, but growing up in white middle-class America, I somehow got this idea that the whole world kind of revolved around me. I vividly remember watching The Truman Show for the first time and legitimately thinking that someone made that movie to try to fool me into thinking it wasn't real, because I had figured out a long time ago that this was all a ruse, I was the only real person, and they were just trying to throw me off the scent by making a movie about it. I'm sure I'm not the only one. And maybe that's part of development as a kid, right? Learning that you're one piece of a massive puzzle. But if we don't end up with a healthy balance, a right view of ourselves, it's so easy to fall back into old patterns. When we become the center of our own universe and things don't go our way, we feel bitter or a need to exert control. And when things go well, we get arrogant and self-reliant. Coming under God's authority starts to feel a little uncomfy. When we lose track of our value, we become susceptible to envy and resentment and jealousy and judgment towards other people. We might feel like the world just uses us and discards us in favor of someone more important, someone who has more to offer, someone more unique, more driven, more rich, more handsome, more graceful, more intelligent. We start to treat ourselves like the minor character. 
Joseph was a tradesman. He wasn't wealthy or significant, and yet God chose him to be the adopted father of Jesus himself. So no matter what the world says, God has not disqualified you. So what does it mean that Joseph was faithful to the law? That word means being in accordance with high standards of rectitude, upright, just, fair. He would have carefully observed the law and been known as someone who did so. At that time, to be betrothed was legally the same thing as being married. It was part one of a two-part process. During the betrothal period, the couple couldn't consummate the marriage or live together, but the commitment was the same as if they were married. In order to break off an engagement, you legally had to file for divorce. So once he found out that Mary was apparently pregnant by another man, Joseph had two options. One was to make a public display of Mary's unfaithfulness, which at that time could result in the death penalty. Or to give her a notice of divorce in front of a couple witnesses and just walk away. He knows that regardless, Mary will be disgraced and subject to a life of dishonor. But there's wiggle room. He could take out his anger and get revenge for being wronged, and no one would fault him for it. But according to this verse, Joseph's priority was Mary, not wanting to put her to shame, it says. He chooses the more merciful way. God's kingdom is like this. It chooses mercy every time. It says, after he had considered this, what's very interesting to me is that the angel doesn't appear to Joseph at the same time as he appears to Mary. Or any time, it seems like, any time during the three months that Mary goes to stay with Elizabeth. The angel waits until she comes home with a baby bump. And then God lets Joseph make a decision about what he's going to do before he lets him into the secret. God actually lets him sit in the turmoil of what feels like a pretty devastating situation. It isn't until Joseph decides how he will move forward that Gabriel appears to him and catches him up on what's going on. Isn't that annoying? That's annoying. Like, just tell Joseph what's going on and save him the anxiety, right? But God lets him make up his mind while being completely in the dark about the way things are, responding only to the way things seem to be. In that process, Joseph reveals to us and anyone watching the quality of his character. So I want to ask, because this feels relatable to me, do you sometimes feel like you're walking in the dark? Do you sometimes feel like you're lost in a situation that you just can't see through? I think the Lord wants to remind you that he isn't disappointed in you for not knowing what the right thing is. And maybe he's more interested in the quality of your character, your compassion, your gentleness, your faith. Maybe he's more interested in how you treat people when you're weak than how you treat them when you're strong. Maybe he's more interested in what guides your decisions than with you making the right decision.
Joseph doesn't technically make the correct choice. By divorcing Mary, he's working with only part of the facts, and he chooses the best thing he can, given the reality that he sees. But God doesn't leave him there. He encounters Joseph in an incredible way. There's a handful of people that God speaks to in dreams in the Bible, and Joseph is one of them. It struck me as kind of odd that Joseph would have a dream, wake up, and be like, 100% that was real. He, do, he doesn't even seem to question that it was a true revelation of God. He just meets with an angel, and he's like, yep. And it wasn't a fluke. The angel didn't get the time wrong and accidentally catch Joseph while he was sleeping. Four times God speaks to Joseph, and all four times it's in a dream. And all four times he immediately obeys. There's no way to know for sure, but I kind of wonder if our Joseph, son of Jacob, grew up with stories about his great, 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 great uncle Joseph, son of Jacob, who had visions like this. You remember the one with the technicolor dream coat? He became known as the dreamer because he had prophetic visions and dreams and could interpret other people's visions and dreams too. Did that make Joseph more open to receiving God through a dream? Did God choose to speak to him this way because it'll call to mind stories from his history when the Lord provided miracles of deliverance for his people? It's no way to know for sure, but it is fun to remember that all of these people are connected. One thing I know to be true, when God moves in power, there's no denying that it's real. I have a pretty deep fear of the supernatural in general. Some people are just really attuned to it and love it. I've always just been scared of anything that feels out of my control. So for me, engaging with all the Holy Spirit stuff has been a process. But every time I've encountered the presence of God, all fear immediately goes away. Almost always my very first thought is, oh yeah, you are who you say you are. Gentle, loving, Almighty Father, King of Glory, Prince of Peace. And God doesn't always speak through grand visions of angels, right? His daily presence with you, his new mercies every morning, his nudges and convictions, these are all movements of his spirit. Don't just wait for the big moments. Practice being attuned to God and getting to know his voice always. Be in the word, be in prayer, foster an awareness of his spirit. We do this naturally in our closest relationships, right? Think of the person you know best. When you get to know somebody, you get to know the sound of their voice. You can pick them out in a crowd. You become attuned to their rhythms and pitch and tone. You get to know their patterns and emotions. The same is true of God. The more you spend time listening, receiving, welcoming his presence into moments of your day, the more you'll notice him everywhere. A good way to practice this is um, by being part of the prayer ministry time we do here at the front of every service. 
we really believe that Jesus wants to be part of our lives and wants to move in us. So we set aside time every week to invite him in and to receive. So I just want to encourage you to come up and be part of that. If you ever want to, it's never too much, come up every week if you want to. So the next thing the angel does is to tell Joseph to name the baby Jesus. A little bit about that name. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Joshua was one of those main characters in Israel's history, the successor to Moses and the one who led them into the promised land. Lots of children were named after him. But the angel goes further. He adds that Jesus' mission will extend deeper than winning their physical freedom. He says you should name him this because he will save people from their sins. God's plan was bigger than they ever dreamed. His salvation would be something deeper, something that cuts the core of our humanity. Sin is everything that traps and ensnares us, attitudes and actions that hurt ourselves or others and keep God at arm's length. But Jesus destroys the power of those things on the cross and offers us a new kind of freedom with him at the center of our lives. It's bigger than a nation or an earthly kingdom. In the kingdom of heaven, there are no dividing walls between us and each other or between us and God. This is the kingdom we seek. I think when we come to the story of Christmas, we kind of know what's about to happen. So when we read about the angel appearing to Mary and Joseph and the sky full of angels announcing his birth to the shepherds, we aren't really shocked by it. We already know Jesus is going to be born in a feeding trough in a stable full of animals and there's going to be some wise men that come and give him gifts. He'll grow up into a man who does miracles and lives a life of pure love and power who shows us what it means to be fully human. He'll die for our sins. He'll be resurrected and offer us a life full of his spirit. It's unbelievable what's about to happen over the next 33 years. But try for a second to just forget that you know what's about to happen and put yourself in Joseph's shoes in this moment. He's just living his life. He goes to bed one night, probably anxious about the situation with Mary. And he meets with an angel in his dreams, telling him that the baby to be born is not only a supernatural work of God, but he will come to be known as Emmanuel, God with us. His son will be the greatest gift of all to all of mankind. To know God's presence with them. To know that after all these years of waiting, he truly has not left them or forsaken them. They are not alone. That's amazing. To not feel alone is one of the most powerful things we can experience, isn't it? Singing with my friends is literally my favorite thing in the entire world. But last week, I was singing for my friend's show, and I was just really going through it. I'd had some super heavy conversations that day, and I honestly didn't want to be there. I just felt 
really, really raw. I was sad and tired, and I kind of felt like a shell of myself. As many of you all will relate to, uh, tender emotions are scary, and they tend to masquerade as tougher ones, and so I was just kind of agitated all night. I was upset that things were running late. I was annoyed at my literal best friends, and <laughs> then the concert started, and not once but twice, two different friends came up to me and just put their arm around my shoulder without speaking and just sat there. It was a quiet, like, I see you. I can tell you're not yourself, and I just want you to know that I know kind of arm. The first time it happened, I was like, oh, that's nice. It feels good to be seen, you know. The second time, I just wept. I just sat there for 20 minutes with tears streaming down my face. Because in my weakness, I was held. I was seen. I was loved. I no longer felt alone. When I think of Emmanuel, that's what I think of. It's God seeing us, knowing us, and then meeting us exactly where we are, not where we want to be, not where we appear to be, but where we are with what we need. For some of you today, that means tenderness. For others, it means courage, strength, power, miracles, mountains being moved, peace, respite, joy, exuberance, conviction of who Jesus is or how we've grieved him, healing, hope. All of these are found in Jesus, and he's here. And he wants to show you his presence. He wants to meet with you, to remind you that you're not alone, you're not forgotten, you're not forsaken. You are a crucial part of his story. We're going to end today by singing a song. So if the band wants to come up, you guys can. As we do, would you try just telling God where you're at with all of this? There's no wrong answer. There's no right answer. Just try being honest and invite him to meet you where you're at today.